How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and today I'm going to be in conversation with Ian Toll, who is the author of Twilight of the Gods, the third part of his trilogy on the Pacific War that the United States fought with Japan in the World War II area. And we're coming to you today from the Robert H. Smith Auditorium of the New York Historical Society. So let's start with uh, Pearl Harbor. Uh, It's widely thought by some people that President Roosevelt knew in advance that there was going to be uh, an attack on Pearl Harbor, and he didn't want to do anything about it because he really wanted an excuse to get the Americans into the war. Is there any truth to that? No. Uh, that conspiracy theory has been discredited. Unfortunately, John Toland, who was a, a, a very influential author in the 1970s, wrote a book advancing that conspiracy theory. Uh, the wrinkle is that we did know that the Japanese were likely to launch a war. Uh, in the Pacific. Why? Why what, what were they upset about? We were, they were upset about, uh, well, a number of things, but um, the, the real uh, crux of the matter was our oil embargo. We had cut off our oil exports to them. Japan <clears throat> then is now is a, a country uh, impoverished in natural resources with little or no domestic oil production. They needed our oil. Uh, we had cut it off in the summer of 1941. And that's why they felt that they were forced to go to war. Now, the Americans did know or believe that there might be an attack because the Japanese were upset. We expected them to launch a war. Where did we expect them? The conventional wisdom, they would launch it where? Well, we thought, uh, really just looking at what we thought their capabilities were, uh, we thought that they would attack in the Western Pacific. So we expected an attack perhaps to fall in the Philippines, uh, on Guam, uh, and on the British and Dutch uh, territories in Southeast Asia. Uh, We did not expect them to strike at Pearl because I don't think, frankly, we believe they had the capability to do that. Uh, It was an extraordinary operation at the time. No one had dreamt that you could push a a fleet of aircraft carriers halfway across the Pacific to launch a really enormous airstrike uh, involving hundreds of planes simultaneously. So as uh, Roosevelt said the day afterwards when he asked for a declaration of war, it was uh, we should give the Japanese credit Uh, for a brilliant uh, operation which was brilliantly carried out. He praised the Japanese. Now, can you explain how the Japanese military worked? Did the Navy and the Army work together, or was it unified? And how was uh, uh, the Emperor involved? The uh, Army and the Navy were largely independent. uh, And um, they they never really, there was no uh, single authority uh, who could impose and a coherent policy on both branches. So really going all the way back to the Meiji Restoration period, the Army and the Navy were independent, co-equal rivals. Uh, Hirohito's um, authority within the government was uh, a a constitutionally 
debatable kind of thing. Uh, the Meiji Constitution granted him great power to command the armed forces. And yet through a series of uh, precedents, uh, he had come to, he had been told and he had come to believe that really his uh, role was to approve the recommendations of, of the uh, services when they were unanimous. So how many uh, ships did they send there to um, have the attack and how many airplanes were there? Well, they, they had uh, six, six aircraft carriers in Kido Butai, which was their carrier striking force. Uh, there were about uh, 12 to 14 other warships. And then they had a number of fleet oilers and logistical support vessels as well. Uh, there were some 360 planes, I believe, uh, distributed across those carriers. And um, uh, they participated in, um, in both the rounds of the strikes on Pearl Harbor. So how come our satellites didn't pick up the, that they were coming? We didn't, we didn't know? We had our satellites pointed in the wrong direction. <laughs> so we had radar, but the radar didn't obviously go that far. But didn't we have some ships that were kind of surrounding Pearl Harbor that when I picked up something, or we just were completely radio silent you know, about we, this? We relied mostly on, um, uh, on patrol flights uh, by PBYs, which were flying boats, uh, these very large planes that land on water. And, um, and those uh, planes had been, had been doing their, their patrol flights uh, but uh, they weren't doing them. They weren't doing as many of them as they really needed to be doing. Uh, and the J Japanese came in and launched under cover of darkness. The attack is on the morning of December the seventh. Yes. And uh, how many Americans were killed in that attack? It's about 2,800 were killed. And how many ships were sunk? Uh, well, we lost, uh, I think, nine, nine. Uh, total. Yeah. And how many uh, Japanese were killed in the attack? Well, virtually none. Uh, they lost uh, 30 planes, I think. Um, so barely, and none of their ships were scratched at all. So they got away pretty much scot-free. In planning for the attack, what did the Japanese think would be our response to say, okay, you, you got us and we're, we don't want to fight? Or what, what was their planned response? They had, um, uh, Yamamoto, for example, had said, uh, our chance here is to essentially cripple their uh, Navy so that they don't have uh, the opportunity to interfere with what we're going to do, which is to go south and take these territories in the South Pacific that we need uh, for oil and other raw materials. Um, he also hoped that by striking this blow, uh, he would demoralize us uh, and perhaps even uh, bring about a political situation in which the American people were demanding uh, that uh, we uh, sign some sort of a truce. But in hindsight, they would admit that they miscalculated how severe our counterattack would be, is it that was, right? It was one of, the, one of the, the worst miscalculations in history, I think. Uh, it was certainly one of the worst decisions ever made by a nation, I think. The Japanese attacked uh, the United States and Great Britain, um, nations which potentially had the power to, to field much more significant military forces than they were capable of doing. And they solved uh, FDR's greatest problem, which was that the American people were divided. Uh, the isolationist movement was very strong. It collapsed overnight, literally. And uh, did the Germans declare war on us as well? They did, three days later. Why would they declare war on us? You know, there's a lot of scholarship on this. I'm not a, a historian of the Third Reich, uh, but um, it's a good question, why did Hitler make that decision uh, when he had the capacity to, to do nothing, to wait and see, or at least to demand that the Japanese mobilize to, to strike uh, the Soviet Union? 
which is what, what the Germans, after all, wanted to do. They wanted another front for the Soviets in, in, the, in the East. Uh, and yet he uh, declared war on, on Thursday, again solving another big political problem for FDR. All right, so the war is going forward. We're in the war, and it doesn't go so well in the beginning. Um, and you talk about that in your first two books. But I want to go through three key parts of your third part of your, of your trilogy. And let's start with the Iwo Jima uh, invasion and uh, that battle there. How many men were lost in Iwo Jima by Americans? Uh, combat losses in Iwo Jima were, uh, I think, close to 20,000 total, of whom about 6,000 and change were killed. And the Japanese lost? Their whole garrison minus maybe two or 300 people, so 24,000. 24,000. Yeah. So between both sides, over 40,000. Uh, yes. Yeah, well, 30, more than 30,000 killed, yeah, and, and, um, and more than 40,000 killed or wounded, yeah. Why was uh, Iwo Jima so important? It's a little speck of land. It's barely, you know, enough to land anything on. Why was it so important? Well, I, I mean, I think it, it has um, lived large in, in our collective memory for a number of reasons. Uh, the, um, the famous photograph of the Marines raising the flag on Suribachi, I think, has left an imprint on our historical memory. Um, it uh, was emblematic of this, this kind of warfare that we were capable of toward the end. So Iwo Jima was in 1945, it's toward the end of the war, where we could assemble these enormous uh, naval amphibious fleets and go attack uh, essentially what, what, which, what was a fortress. Iwo Jima was a fortress. Uh, the entire island was a fortress. We could uh, land troops and, um, and, and take that island. But why do we care? I mean, why don't we just fly over? Why do we, what was so important about Iwo Jima to begin with? It was really driven by the B-29 campaign. Uh, so we had taken the, um, the Marianas Islands to the south uh, earlier in uh, 1944. And we had launched this enormous air campaign using this new airplane, the B-29, to fly some 1,500 miles north to bomb Tokyo and the Japanese uh, industrial heartland. And we were losing a lot of these planes uh, because they would either run out of fuel or they were hit by flak and they would go down at sea. And so we needed a, another airfield that was closer. Iwo Jima was about 600 miles closer uh, to Japan. So the Japanese, knowing that this was an important uh, place for us to be able to refuel, they armed the place, but how did they do it? They didn't just put soldiers there and said, let's just wait or dig trenches. What did they do that was fairly unique? At least the Americans thought it was unique. Yeah, what they really did was they built an extraordinarily large and complicated um, uh, network of tunnels and bunkers. And so essentially they took this entire garrison, almost 24,000 troops, and they put them all underground. Uh, it was one of our planners uh, said, uh, the Japanese were not on Iwo Jima, they were in Iwo Jima. Uh, so it was um, perhaps the most heavily fortified eight, eight square miles in the world. And they were there for months before we attacked? They were, yeah. And so when we attacked, uh, they just stayed in their uh, caves or their bunkers and didn't really fight back so much? They fought back, but they also stayed in their bunkers. Uh, so it was artillery and mortars that did a lot of the damage. Uh, and then they would sally out uh, in with small unit attacks. They didn't, they didn't do these waves, these human waves, these bonsai attacks, uh, which had been tactically ruinous for them on in other islands. Okay, so winning Sir, Mount Suribachi is nice, and you got the flag, and you got the photo, yeah. but there's the rest of the island they had to go get. Right. And how long did it take to get, capture the rest of the island? Another, almost another month. 
A month. Yeah. I mean, this was, this was part of the reason that Iwo Jima was such a destructive battle, is that our forces were continuing to take heavy casualties into the second, third, and even the fourth week of the battle. So when we're still trying to capture um, Iwo Jima, yep. in the end, the Japanese, did they come out surrendering or did they commit suicide? Many of them took their own lives. Um, and uh, there was a, in the final stage, there was a party of Japanese who came out, something like 500 of them uh, came out, snuck down along the coast and then uh, surprised a, a bivouac in one of the rear areas. And there was a, a firefight that went on for several hours and they were all killed. But the senior officers, many of them felt Kurabayashi. that they, they, would, they had to kill themselves because it was dishonorable to surrender? Yeah, I mean, that, that was uh, an injunction which was strictly enforced, uh, that uh, you were not to give yourself up. You were, if necessary, to kill yourself. And that, that was a, a, du a direct order uh, throughout the entire Japanese military uh, during the Second World War. So let's talk about the atomic weapon. Um, where did the idea for building an atomic weapon come from? There's a famous story that Albert Einstein wrote a letter to FDR saying, I think, in effect, we better do something because the Germans are going to do something in creating their own atomic yep. weapon. Is that true? Did he actually that write true. that letter? Yes. And did he Einstein actually... was asked to write the letter by some of his colleagues because he was the most prominent uh, scientist in the world. It turned out that the Germans were, were not developing an atomic weapon. Is that right? No, they had a program. Uh, they didn't get very far. Uh, Werner Heisenberg was in charge of their program. But it, it didn't really get to the point where they actually had they a nuclear concluded, weapon, did they? Uh, they concluded that the industrial engineering uh, required to build this weapon uh, was beyond their capabilities uh, while they were also fighting a two-front war, conventional war. Right, so President uh, Roosevelt gets a letter from Albert Einstein, and then ultimately he tells somebody, well, maybe we should build a nuclear weapon. Uh, who did he tell, and what, how was it kept secret? He told Henry Stimson, uh, who was the Secretary of War, uh, to investigate this possibility, uh, to assemble whatever scientific uh, advisors he needed uh, to explore, to see whether this was a, a real threat that the uh, Third Reich would obtain this weapon, and whether or not we ought to uh, pursue a program to build it ourselves. And they came back uh, with the conclusion that it, would, that it was within our power. And, um, uh, and then uh, somewhat less than a year later, FDR signed another order saying go. So how many people were actually working on the so-called Manhattan Project? Was it thousands of them? Certainly thousands, yeah. I mean, I, um, I, I want to say probably something like 60,000 people working on the Manhattan Project. And 60,000 people could keep a secret? You know, very few of them knew what they were doing. Uh, so at, this, at, the, at the isotope separation plants, where we were enriching uranium and plutonium in uh, Tennessee and Washington state, uh, virtually none of the people working in those facilities had any idea what they were doing. So they tested this weapon in, the, in uh, New Mexico? Is that yes. where it was tested? the and Trinity test, yeah. Did they know it was actually going to work or they thought it would work? How did the test go? Uh, well, the test was successful. Uh, that was a plutonium bomb, so uh, not to get too far into the details, but the uranium and plutonium bombs were, were designed differently. The plutonium bomb required a, uh, an implosion trigger, uh, which was a much more complicated device. And so uh, the real question, I think, in the minds of the scientists was, would that trigger work? They were confident that the uranium bomb would work, and so we didn't even test that. 
did they realize at the time when they watched the test that there would be radiation that would be as devastating as the blast itself? Uh, you know, there's been a lot of uh, scholarly work on this. I think there were clear indications uh, that uh, radiation was going to be harmful and that it would potentially have serious detrimental effects on human health. But they didn't have enough data to, to know exactly to what extent that would be true. FDR presumably was kept informed. He knew about it. Uh, did he ever tell his vice president anything about this? Uh, Truman really was not briefed at all uh, on the atomic bomb until after he was sworn into office. So at that point in the war, after FDR dies, the decision has to be made, do we drop nuclear bombs on Japan or do we just do a land invasion? And that debate went on for a while and the consensus was that it'd be better to drop a nuclear weapon or more than one because more American lives would presumably be saved, is that right? Uh, yeah. I mean. Uh, Certainly saving American lives was part of it. I think also finishing, finishing the war quickly. There was a real sense in July, August 1945 that we needed to end the war quickly. And there were a number of reasons uh, for that. Uh, one very important one was that Stalin was coming in. Uh, the Russians were going to join the war. They had committed to join the war. Uh, by that time, we didn't trust them. And, uh, and we thought that if the, war, if the Japanese held out for too long, uh, the Red Army then would be able to take territory throughout Asia uh, from which you would not be able to dislodge them. So there was a, a little bit of a race dynamic at the end. The military makes a recommendation yeah. that ultimately, let's not do a land invasion of Japan. Let's do a dropping of an atomic bomb. Yeah. Where is Truman when he's informed that that's the military's recommendation? There have been a series of meetings in June, July 1945. Um, the there were a series of formal recommendations. I think June 20th, there was a meeting in the White House in which it was recommended that uh, direct military use against uh, Japanese cities would be the uh, best way to shock the Japanese, most likely to bring about uh, a break the deadlock in Tokyo. We were aware that the Japanese government was divided at this point and, um, and because we were reading their diplomatic traffic. So he gave the order, and the order was... Uh to drop one atomic bomb. Why did they pick Hiroshima? Uh, there had been four cities uh, identified uh, by a target selection committee. And uh, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Kokura, and Nagata were the four. Um, they had been chosen mainly because they had not been hit hard by conventional bombing. And uh, they had the topographical uh, characteristics that were thought to give the best expression to the bomb's power. And so the order was to, to drop two bombs uh, and uh, to drop them on, one of the, on, on two of those uh, four cities uh, as the local tactical commander chose. And the pilots who were asked to drop the bomb, were they told what the bomb was? Yes. Did they know exactly what the force of it would be? Or? Yes, they did. And what was the name of the plane? Well, the Enola Gay was the plane that dropped the Hiroshima bomb. Yeah. Boxcar dropped the Nagasaki bomb. Where did the name Enola Gay come from? Uh, Paul Tibbetts, who was the head of the, uh, the 509th Composite Group, so he was the head, head pilot um, of the entire group of planes uh, that had been uh, trained to drop the bomb, uh, named the plane after his mother. Okay. All right, so they get on the mission. Yeah. They go to drop the bomb, and... After they dropped the bomb, they were told, get out of there quickly, right? Yes. Uh, bank hard, 160 degrees, uh, and uh, try to get at least eight miles away from the And when explosion. they looked back, what did they see? 
you know, an enormous mushroom cloud coming up. They couldn't see the city at all. They had no idea, though, that it was going to be that devastating a bomb? I think that, you know, it's clear from all of the direct accounts that uh, they were deeply moved by what they saw. And how many people ultimately were killed by the bomb in Hiroshima that we know about? I think it's, it's um, fair to say that uh, there were some 30 to 40,000 people killed initially. Initially. And initially. And then radiation later. And then radiation later could have killed easily 50, 60,000 more. But some people say it may be 200,000 in Hiroshima. So the estimates vary widely. And uh, after the bomb is dropped, do the, are the Japanese people uniformly told about this bomb? And are they, and is the Japanese military saying, well, we ought to give up right now? Or what, did they, what was the reaction? The uh, Japanese people were not told. Uh, there were um, announcements that there was some sort of a special weapon uh, that had been dropped on Hiroshima. But three days later, when we hit Nagasaki, the people in Nagasaki had not been informed uh, that we had this weapon. But after Hiroshima bombing, yeah. um, did the U.S. say, well, let's wait a couple days before we do another bomb because we, maybe they'll just give up? Or how long did, did we wait? There was no second order given uh, for Nagasaki. So there was one order given, drop both bombs um, on or about this date. Uh, and the date was set because they wanted uh, Truman back at sea. Uh, he, he'd been in Germany. They wanted him at sea when the first one was dropped. Uh, and they said, go ahead and drop these two bombs on two out of these four target cities as selected by the local commander. This Nagasaki bomb was dropped how many days after the Hiroshima? Three days. Three days. So in the three-day period of time, the Japanese government didn't say, by the way, give us some time. We might be surrendering? No. Okay. So they dropped the bomb on Nagasaki. How many people were killed in that bomb? Uh, it's thought that fewer were killed, uh, partly because the topography of where the bomb, the bomb was a little bit off target and they're, they're, it's a hillier city. Uh, but uh, perhaps 20,000 killed initially, perhaps more, and um, why 40, 50,000. Why not drop both or one of those bombs on Tokyo? Uh, well, Tokyo had been ruled out um, for a couple of reasons. One, because uh, the government was there and we th it was thought that we needed the government we needed a, 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 if we wanted an organized surrender, somebody would have to surrender. After the Nagasaki bomb, did the Japanese military get together with the emperor and say, you know, this is not good, we really need to give up? And was it uniform that they would give up? It was not uniform. Uh, they're, essentially, they were deadlocked. So there was a, a council of uh, six uh, military and civilian advisors uh, who uh, were essentially um, advising the, the emperor at that point, and they happened to be divided three to three. So they were deadlocked with three on one side, three on the other. And, um, and, and the way that the decision finally was made uh, was that they went to the emperor and they said, uh, we can't resolve this deadlock, and so we're going to allow you to, to make this decision. We ask you to make this decision. And what did he say? Surrender. But I thought the Americans had said, we want unconditional surrender. Yes. What did that mean, unconditional surrender? Well, that was, that was a, uh, a controversial point. And, and critics of that uh, doctrine that uh, FTR had insisted upon uh, uh, said that it was ambiguous and that this was um, actually not in the Allies' interest uh, to articulate a, um, a unconditional surrender doctrine. But uh, the way we explained it when we got to the end of the war was that it applied to the manner in which the military forces would surrender. The military forces would have to lay down arms without any conditions. 
So we didn't say that the Japanese government would have to accept uh, unconditional surrender. Now, before the Japanese actually surrendered, I thought they had one condition, which was an unusual condition, but they, the condition was that the emperor be allowed to continue to be the emperor. Is that right? Yes. That was their bottom line. Why was that the most important thing? You know, uh, the emperor was essentially a god. Uh, he was a god in Japan. And so uh, uh, they, their greatest concern was that uh, we would take him into custody, kill him, humiliate him, hang him. Uh, and um, they wanted him at least to be uh, left alone in his palace and allowed to continue as a, a sort of a constitutional monarch. And we were amenable to that. Why, why were we amenable to that? What, didn't we want to just end the, the leader of the, uh, the Japanese government as the man who was responsible for the war? Why were we willing to agree to that? It was certainly controversial. And in fact, the decision to keep Hirohito on uh, after the war was unpopular with the American people. Uh, many Americans felt that he should have been held to account. Uh, and tried as a war criminal. But why did we, why did we keep him? MacArthur insisted uh, that we keep him. And uh, it was thought that we needed him to essentially uh, rule as a kind of vassal uh, and to uh, enforce uh, cooperation uh, during the period of occupation, which he did. Part of the arrangement, I guess, was that we would occupy Japan and we would send in American troops. That's right. And was that controversial within Japan, that Japan uh, attack us when we came in. The American troops are coming in. They're now occupying uh, Japan. How was that received by the Japanese people? Yeah, I mean, it really was extraordinary what happened at the end of the war. Uh, we poured our uh, military forces in, into that place. Uh, they went ashore as if they were going, if, if they were invading. I mean, they literally landed with uh, a full combat gear. And um, nowhere in the length and breadth of that populace uh, country was there a single attack on any Allied soldier coming in after the war. So the emperor said, uh, surrender, and uh, the entire nation, uh, as one, obeyed. It was remarkable, really. So any more trilogies in your future? <laughs> <laughs> or well, trilogies they, take too much time? They do take quite a bit of time, and eventually I will run out of years. Um, this one started out as a single volume, ended up as a trilogy. I don't plan anymore, but uh, I'm going to write a sequel to my first book, Six Frigates. Uh, so it'll be, be about the War of 1812 in the north, in the borderlands between the U.S. and Canada. But if you do that, you've written one book, and if it's a sequel, then you might have a trilogy down. One more? I, you know, I hadn't thought of that, but that's a good idea. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much for an interesting conversation. Thank you very much. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.